Hi, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking from top academics at the University of Cambridge and beyond. George Rosenfeld is a student of human, social and political science here at Cambridge and the founder of May Week Alternative, an initiative encouraging students to celebrate the post-exam period by donating a personally significant amount of money to an effective charity. After the donations period, they host a summer party to mark their collective impact. It's not just about the numbers, although they are impressive. Over £160,000 raised in under three years, protecting about 180,000 people from malaria. Crucially, May Week Alternative is also about long-term attitude change and rethinking models of student charity fundraising. This is our longest episode so far, and we covered a lot of ground. If you're interested in starting a charitable movement or in how to use your career or time to do more good, then I hope you'll find this especially useful. We talk about George's inspiration for starting May Week Alternative and what he's learned about growing and sustaining a student-based charity. We discuss the psychology of what gets people to join the movement and donate their own money and the myths and misperceptions surrounding what it means to have a positive impact, as well as the most credible ways to do so and a lot more besides. We mentioned effective altruism a couple of times in this conversation, so I should explain what it is now, and hopefully at some point we'll be able to do a full podcast on it. So effective altruism is a fairly recent social movement and kind of broad set of philosophical ideas that emphasises using reason and evidence to find out how we can use our resources to help others the most. So rather than doing just what feels right, It's about using careful and impartial analysis to find those very best causes to work on. But it's no use answering these questions if you don't act on them. So effective altruism is also about following through and being generous with your time and your money to do the most good you can. So here's George Rosenfeld. My name is George Rosenfeld. I am a third year at Cambridge and I study HSPS, which is basically politics. I used to study Arabic and Russian for two years, and then I switched, so it's my first year in politics. Okay, and we're going to be talking about May Week Alternative, um, but very briefly, can you just explain what it's about and how it started? Sure. So I think the context for May Week Alternative, you need to be able to describe May Week, for, particularly for your listeners who are not in Cambridge. May Week is the week of celebration which happens after our exams are finished here in Cambridge. And I mean, what it's most famous for are these, are these huge uh, bulls, which are quite famous all around the world. I think before I'd even started studying here in Cambridge, people were asking if they could come to, to the May Ball, if I could get tickets and things <laughs> yeah. like that. So um, they, they, they're, they're the staple of May Week, I suppose. But more broadly, it's sunny. There's not very much time in Cambridge, which we enjoy without deadlines. And it's, it's an atmosphere which you just don't get any other time of the year. When you join in your first year and the tickets start coming out for May Balls, it's kind of expected that you'll go to your college's May Ball. And tickets, to give some idea, cost an average of about £150, but the most expensive ones will be £200 plus. 
And it seems to be kind of expected most people in a social group will go to the Mabel. Um, and that's not to say it's a bad thing. It's something which people really enjoy. It's a once in a lifetime experience and it's, you know, letting your hair down at the end of at the end of the year. But it is quite remarkable how it's become normalized. And I remember just thinking I'm in a room of, of 18 year olds and it's kind of expected that we're going to spend 200 pounds uh, uh, like on ourselves for one night. I'd just never done that before. And and was quite surprised at, at that dynamic. So May Week Alternative is very simply an initiative which tries to put charity at the heart of the May Week celebrations. The way we do that is we invite students to celebrate May Week by donating the approximate cost of a Mabel ticket or an amount which is significant to them to charity. We recommend the Against Malaria Foundation, which is independently rated as one of the most effective charities in the world, and we have very generous match funders, which means that every single donation is doubled. We then host at the end of each year during May week a summer party, which is not really like a May ball. It's a bit like a garden party, but we call it a celebration of giving. And it's a time for uh, lots of the people who've donated to come together and to celebrate May week, to celebrate the end of exams, uh, but also to reflect together as a community on, on that collective impact. It's really important to us that the donation isn't seen as as a kind of ticket to the party, that it, we're, we're inviting people to celebrate May week by making a significant donation. And then like some of those people come along to celebrate that at the end and to reflect on that in the summer party. And I guess it's also worth pointing out that that summer party, none of the money that gets raised for donation goes to that summer party. That is itself independently funded through sponsorships or uh, donations from businesses. A hundred percent. So often the models of charity balls normally is that you'd you'd kind of say have a have a ticket price of 40 pounds and then uh whatever isn't spent on the party mm. would then go to charity some kind of profit model for us because as i said it's celebrating through giving 100 percent of that donation actually 200 percent when you consider the match funding goes directly to charity uh, and then that the 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 party is a, is a celebration of that it's a reflection of the collective impact but that comes entirely separately it's put on we have a starting budget of of nothing and then we have support from colleges and local companies who who allow us to put that on to bring everyone together. Before we kind of go into the specifics of what you did with May Week Alternative and what is happening this year as well, um, I'd like to just take a step back and just talk about your views on charitable giving before. So if I understand it right as well, you did a lot of charity work um, back when you were at school. And I'd just be interested to see how you kind of think about charity um, in general and what you really wanted to do differently with May Week Alternative. I had some experience of fundraising and thinking about global issues when I was in school and that felt like something which is really important to me. And when I came across May Week, there was the juxtaposition of these two factors on one night, which was the fact that the Trinity, which is my college, the Trinity Mayball ticket deadline was coming up, so everyone was deciding whether or not we'd be going to the Bulls um, and we were all ready to spend that amount of money. And then I went down to a talk which was in Trinity by Rob Mather, who is the founder of the Against Malaria Foundation. And this is a remarkable charity which has been rated independently as one of the most effective charities in the world. And I remember hearing him talk about the huge impact that just a small donation could have with his charity through what he'd managed to set up. 
And then obviously comparing that to the amount of money which myself and all of my friends were about to spend on, on the mate ball tickets. And I remember thinking, it's incredible that it's normalised to spend that amount of money on ourselves. Imagine if uh, also you could use May Week to normalise that amount of money being spent on on others and on looking outside of Cambridge and on trying to create the sort of impact which Rob had managed to create through the Against Malaria Foundation. And I, I was sitting there listening to his talk and I was just... I was kind of desperate. I was loving it, but I was desperate for it to finish because I had this idea and I wanted to like, turn around to the people sitting next to me and say, should we do this? Yeah, so one way charities get people to give is by making us feel bad. We might see upsetting images. There might be kind of desperate pleas in times of need, this kind of thing. Um, and it's possible to get people to give over money for a feeling of guilt or maybe shame maybe a kind of sense of obligation that isn't too exciting. Um, but you had an idea that you might be able to frame charity in another more positive way. Can you just explain that? Yeah, I think this this doesn't apply to all charity, but there's definitely been a trend and it's been picked up by the media that a, a lot of uh, charity, particularly around the developing world, uh, is is framed a lot around making people feel guilty. So you have... In some ways, it is just a reflection of the way that the world is. But you have often broadly the idea that look at this huge suffering and if you don't do anything, then the suffering will continue. And and you see pictures of, of babies who are dying or who are malnourished or of refugees. And when you see that sort of imagery and that sort of appeal, it does tug at the heartstrings and it makes us feel... Uh, quite guilty about the fact that we are we are in a position where we don't have to worry about those sorts of things and that such a small amount of money relative to our lives can make such a fundamental difference relative to the lives of others. I think this has been quite an easy model for charities to fall into because we're only human, we have some level of compassion and so there's only so many times we can be shown this sort of imagery and not do anything about it. It, it does... It does cause us to act, and like it, it does, it does invite us to do something about it. But I'm not sure that this is a very effective way of of getting people to embrace giving and getting people to embrace this uh, having having this positive impact. Because that experience of giving through guilt is fundamentally quite a negative one. So I I, th- I think what's really interesting is that there might be like a case to be made that like different emotions or different feelings um, should be triggered like in different situations. So I know when like, um, you know, these charities um, that that do kind of, um, you know, use these these like kind of really heartfelt appeals um, probably have spent like a lot of uh, money or um, time thinking about what is the best way to craft their message. And you get... Um, a lot of instances where it's it's very clear that um, presenting just the facts alone won't be able to speak for itself. And then, you know, seeing an advert like that on TV might be the right time and point to to um, capture that emotion. But as we were kind of talking about before with, with May Week and a lot of what that Cambridge um, experience is, that doesn't really um, fit the tone of trying to capture people. And framing it in a positive celebration way is uh, really, and fostering that sense of community, I think, as well, is uh, a really good way to try and, and capture um, the feeling there and engaging people through that. 
Yeah, and I think when you look at the context of May Week, you have two directions you can go down. One, one, one option would be to take the kind of, I guess, extravagance, which we were speaking about before and which May Week is often associated with, and go down some sort of, uh, some sort of route which is, um, you know, there's so much suffering in the world and yet we're spending so much money on ourselves and we're having the opposite of suffering really we're having like the this is the this is as good as it gets on planet earth basically with with the with those with those sorts of parties how can we be doing how can we be doing that when there's so much suffering around and surely we have some moral obligation to stop those patterns of excessive spending and 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 you know start giving and that would be one argument which you which you would go down um, which, which I think is, is, I mean, that's clearly, that's that's clearly trying to make people feel guilty. That's clearly trying to make people feel, um, feel bad about the lives which they enjoy in the in the global context, and 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 yes, I think there's something which is um, more effective, more inspiring within the context of May Week, which is to say that this is this this period of celebration, and um, there is something to celebrate about huge positive impact about the fact that lots and lots of good can be done because we have the solutions to a lot of very serious problems and so trying to frame the act of giving as going hand in hand with the celebrations of May Week um, and, and, and that's what May Week Alternative is all about it's not only about trying to raise as much money as we can during May Week but it's about trying to use the celebratory context of May Week to change the way that people think about giving it's interesting within that context to look at how the business world tries to get us to do things or buy or buy particular products because um, they they know the power of positive framing. If you look at the last advert you saw for I don't know a pair of trainers, for example, they don't try to tell you that like if you don't buy those trainers then you're going to be morbidly obese and have like a 20% higher chance of dying they try and paint a picture of of the positive often unrealistic like athlete which you would become if you did buy if you if you did buy those trainers and i think that this is kind of common sense in 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 business advertising and it hasn't it doesn't really have a it doesn't really have a parallel the common sense in charity uh, advertising is is probably the opposite to that. It's not focusing so much on the on the positive effects. It's focusing more on on kind of what will happen if you what will happen if you don't, or what the problem is. And that can be focusing on the problem, particularly when you're looking at the huge scale of problems which charities are trying to deal with, can be really paralysing for people. Mm-hmm. And I think what you want to do is go for something which can actually empower people and empower people not only to feel like they can do something to help the problem and to help solve the problem on one occasion but empower people that this is something that they can focus on in in the long term and for that some kind of some some more positive framing um is is really useful what did bar mitzvahs teach you about the importance of framing giving in a positive light so bar mitzvah for context is the jewish <laughs> is the jewish coming of age ceremony which you have when you're 13 as as a boy 12 as a girl and this i think this was the first time i'd ever come across charity because it's quite common within the jewish community 
um, the, uh, to, to do something for, for a particular cause, for charity, whether you're fundraising or, or asking for donations instead of for gifts. Um, uh, it's quite common to do something for a charity to mark your bar mitzvah. And I think the thinking behind that is it's a time of real celebration. It's a time when kind of everyone comes together and you've, you know, become an adult. Um, but it, it, it really is a, a big celebration. And you also have, um, uh, like, like, a big party very often. And it's important to put again but to put giving back at a time of celebration right at the heart of 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 what the bar mitzvah is and so when i was 12 years old my parents said you know what your bar mitzvah is coming up in the year you should find a charity do something for a charity and so i was looking up various different charities which one would i support and that was the first time i came across what charity is this idea of like you give away some something which you have and that can through this organization do a lot of good with other people who who are, have a particular problem and that set in motion something which I never really looked back on but I wonder whether it was there was something to do with that context of the bar mitzvah of that of the uh you know the idea of embracing giving because of a celebration which empowered rather than paralyzed me to feel that, that was something which which I could do something about and which which I could embrace over the following years. I had that background in in charity and in fundraising during my teenage years at, at school. So when I came to university, it was obviously something which I was looking at getting involved in. But there was something which I noticed about the way that student charity, when you get to university, is normally done. And I think this is primarily because students are generally don't have very much money disposable income which they can spend on on others basically and what this led to was student charity being largely focused around one of two principles one is we will make it transactional so for example a bit of bake sale or um will or, or even a lot of charity bulls work on an essentially transactional model that yes you might not be getting you might be paying 80 pounds for a ball and and it may only be worth 50 pounds and uh, but and the extra 30 pounds going to charity or something like that but it's transactional so you kind of don't feel like you've made very much of a sacrifice you're getting something in return the other principle is based on imperceptibility so we will kind of try to we will try to make sure that you don't even notice that you've made this donation. Uh, an example of that yeah. might be initiatives which round up uh, purchases which you make and give the extra bit to charity. Or in the context of May Week, buying a May Ball ticket for 150, 200 pounds, and then, hey, do you want to make this this one pound uh, donation yeah. on top of that? And it's all based on, uh, it, it's based on making it, kind of embedding it into your life so that you haven't really noticed that you've you've given very much to charity. And these are great because they, you know, students don't have very much money and so making huge donations isn't necessarily part of part of the model and these things do raise a lot of money. So that's great. But but what no one was doing was saying, "Hey, through these charities, donating doing this, i.e. donating a lot of money, can have a huge impact. Should we do this?" No one was actually asking the question to students of of should we make a positive a positive decision that we should do this because it will have a huge impact. Mm. 
And that was that was to me something which was just screaming out to to be asked because if you don't ask that question, you're setting a limit on what you can actually do with students and not only of what you can raise there and then, but then on how you're asking students to engage with charity going forwards. Hmm. So I, I guess as well, um, kind of giving students an ability to um, form part of their personality or form part of their purpose around that charitable giving, mm-hmm. um, as I felt you clearly resonated with the bar mitzvah celebration around it, of um, using a celebration or that kind of entry point to find a much deeper purpose in charity that goes beyond that celebration and throughout your life. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the word identity is really important in that because there's something about it being a deliberate decision which is which which plays into identity in a way that like putting some money in a bucket or or donating because you see a picture which makes you feel bad on your news feed that's not really like interacting at all with with your identity whereas if it comes in like i mean bar mitzvah is an excellent example there right because i'm literally becoming an adult and what is the first thing i'm doing when i'm becoming an adult is i'm putting kind of giving at the heart of at the heart of my identity as a Jewish adult. Um, and, and so I think there is something about it being a deliberate and conscious. This is why we, we want students to be making a significant donation. So it's a deliberate and conscious decision. There's something about that process which then makes it more a part of someone's identity mm. and which potentially means that that can be taken, uh, taken forwards. So it's possible to get people to give money to charity by invoking like a sense of guilt, by making people feel conflicted, maybe approaching them on the street and um, explaining some terrible state of affairs to them. Um, But you're saying if you've only ever given to charity because you felt bad about something or because it's been made um, so invisible that it kind of felt like you're not really making much of a sacrifice at all, then what's your attitude to charity when you live out the rest of your life? Well, it's not part of your identity and it's not a habit. It's just something that unfortunately you have to do because you're kind of obliged to do it when you feel bad about things. And the idea is now, if you make giving a significant amount of money or making a significant sacrifice for a charity, if you make that a free, conscious decision that no one's forced you to do, but you're doing because it's a good thing and you're celebrating that fact, then that can build habits which carry out over the rest of our lives. And ultimately, those kind of habits or make more of a difference than the kind of particular one-off instances of getting people to hand over like two or three quid because they feel bad if they don't. You're showing me up. <laughs> Just the one thing to say to that is, I don't know whether it does whether it does mean that more money is given over a course of a lifetime because you know guilt can be pretty effective as a mechanism and and you know people people do just continue to give when 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 this kind of stimulus is thrown at them but that's yeah what you described is definitely the model that there's at least a chance that people can embrace it without that external stimulus and maybe do so on a greater on a greater level than than that guilt would have had have encouraged them to do otherwise yeah i guess just anecdotally there are people who give like a significant sum of their money on a kind of recurring basis to charity and if you ask those people why they do it they'll very rarely say they do it out of a sense of guilt because they don't have to do it at all, right? They're doing it because they just know the good effects it's likely to have and they feel good about it. So it sounds like you're onto something here. That to me was one of the things which 
had to be changed about student charity or there had to be something which was focusing on what students would do in the future mm. because if you look at university campuses what's the main impact that charity campaigns are going to have it's very unlikely to be the money which they can get from students when we're on student loans <laughs> and when we're studying it's much more likely even if it only changes a percentage of few, like one percent of future donations that's much more likely to be to be the, the impact which is coming out of student charity and so for me I just didn't see how the how the current models of student charity were putting any focus on on developing a lasting uh, a lifetime attitude towards giving which was positive and which was likely to make people more philanthropic more likely to make uh, to make impact-based decisions when they're thinking about their career or other other key things which are going to come up in their lives. But I guess what's interesting to kind of point out there as well is that that party and the act of giving itself, whilst interlinked through that idea of community, is very much not that kind of transaction that we were kind of talking about before. Do you want to talk a bit about the distinction there? Yeah, I think that's spot on. And I think we're probably the only committee in Cambridge who organizes an event but is quite happy when when we actually get a low percentage of turnout because it means <laughs> it means that the people who are donating the people who are choosing to celebrate through giving are actually understanding what we're about and how it's completely uh, like it's completely within the framework of what we're trying to do that you could make that significant donation and then not be able to come to the event or, or not 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 turn up mm. because it's not it, like it's not meant to be seen as a ticket it's meant to be as a time for pe- a time for people to come together and to reflect on that collective impact and to um and to you know talk to other people who've done the same thing and 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 to create something out of what would otherwise be um like uh, like a very individual uh, experience um normally the donations made like in your room um uh, and and so to bring those people together and to try and um it's also a mechanism for us to try and develop those long-term positive attitudes towards giving um one person said that when you go to a Mayball because of the amount of money you've spent on that ticket, you feel like you have to be eating, drinking or dancing the whole time in order to get your money's worth. And you can turn up to Maywick Alternative like two, three hours late and you've already got your money's worth long before you came because that's that's the, the decision was to celebrate by having a positive impact. Um, so when did you first have that idea? What's the date? The date was February the 20th, 2018. Okay. So that was just, just under two years ago. Okay. And totaling over those three um, money raising periods, roughly how much money have you raised? About £140,000. Um, That's not pocket change. <laughs> <laughs> it's not pocket change. And it, it's not pocket change when you look at it collectively, but also it's been a significant donation every single person who's joined. We talk a lot about how much the movement has grown in terms of the number of students who have joined. We've now had more than 500 students who have, over the past few years, who have joined. But actually, when you look at that number, the reason we've got to that number is not actually the number of students, it's the average donation of each student. Because normally with student charity, you can get, you know, raise five, ten pounds per student, maybe 20 pounds on a good day if you're offering something particularly nice in return. Um, but but Maywick Alternative has had 
you know, an average at the average student has donated more than 80 pounds over the past few years. We have match funding as well, um, which obviously make, makes that impact even bigger of each individual donation. But it's the fact that that students are donating so much, which means that even at the stages where we had relatively modest number of numbers of students joining, we were still raising as much as movements and initiatives which had thousands of students on board. So one thing I kind of think would be interesting to unpack as well is because we've talked a lot about identity and community, um, how that social movement kind of grows in like a university environment. Because um, I imagine at the start, it begins with, because, um, you know, you, you set this up very independently. It starts off with you and your friends, but is now spread to every college and is actually spreading to other places as well. If you would kind of like to talk about the, the kind of network effects that you see or um, how you can kind of facilitate the movement of growing. Yeah, this is this, this is what I've learned most about through mm-hmm. through this process because you constantly have to remind yourself that what students are doing here even when you know 500 students have done it is not something which students do generally. And as you rightly said, you start off with an idea and you're one person. So I came out of the talk uh, about uh, the Against Malaria Foundation and I had this idea that you know students could donate the cost of a Mayball ticket and get nothing of of equal value or anywhere near equal value in return, and that would just be the one of the ways that we were celebrating May Week. And it's unsurprising that people just didn't say yes at the beginning. Like if I if I knock on your door and say, "Hey Luca, hey Finn, I've got this idea. We're gonna we're gonna donate 150 pounds or or." something, a, sign- a really significant donation, more than you've ever donated before. We're going to donate it to charity because because May week, because that's the way that we're going to be celebrating May week. <laughs> I wouldn't expect, I wouldn't expect looking back that the first people would have said yes. And it took a, a week of asking everyone I came across before the first person said yes. So I think it's really interesting to place all of this within that context of it being something which you shouldn't expect people to say yes to because it's not it's not like what we normally do it's not the way we normally engage with charity and this is if if spending that money on Mayball tickets is normalized then this is the opposite of that the first thing which was in my mind when I was trying to get the first person was all I want to do is get 10 people this year if we have 10 people this year, we've got match funding. So let's say people donate £150, that's £3,000 that will protect thousands of people from malaria. That'll be a huge impact. We'll have a wonderful time in the process. And then we'll have proof of concept to take it forwards for next year and to show people this is something which worked. This is something which 10 people have done. You can, you can also do it this year. And then hopefully in the future, you'd get to a point where you have you know, 80, 90 people doing it every single year and you raise thousands of thousands of pounds and so in order to get to that 10 I just need to find one and then we each need to find four and so once you find the first person you're no longer a crazy person with an idea because you have that legitimacy which comes from someone else having decided this is something that they want to do and I've learned that so much of building a social movement and particularly one which is predicated on an ask which is never going to lend itself to being a mass movement overnight is about that legitimacy and is about because the idea hasn't changed but people's receptiveness to it has has changed hugely has been transformed 
such that even it took a week to get the first person at the start. At some point since then, it seemed that all we've had to do is say, look how many other people are doing this. And people say, yeah, it make, makes sense. And that's what changes it from at the beginning being a nice idea, but, you know, it's not something people actually do. I don't think, I don't think I'll, I'll do it to, yeah, yeah, obviously that's a great idea. I can't believe that people weren't doing this before. And that's all because of those those social dynamics of people joining and it's a process of 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 social norms i guess which we've been trying to work on as i started this off by saying that what if you could normalize huge donations in the way that paying large amounts of money for a may bought ticket had become normalized and so that's the process we've been trying to work on so you might find this surprising that just the fact that other people are doing this makes you more likely to do it. But surely the only reasons you'd have for doing it are the effects that money would have and whether or not you're going to enjoy the celebration at the end as well. So do you have some explanation or story for why this works? It certainly has taught me, and I've since become very interested in the field of psychology and behavioural psychology, moral psychology. It's taught me, it's been a very clear example of how we are, we are not rational agents and we don't necessarily make all our decisions based purely on you know the pros and cons of a particular idea or or just based on the facts or what we would consider to be relevant information what i've noticed in having conversations with people from the start is that at the beginning when you've just got an idea there's a lot of scrutiny which people will kind of apply to the idea they want to test where are the weak points like this seems sensible but have you considered this or have you considered this and so it took at the beginning several conversations before someone would want to join I think it, it's perhaps a heuristic that people use like a mental shortcut which people use uh, that you know if if so many other people have done this it can't possibly be a, a bad idea I, I think we know from history that's not necessarily true but if if so many people have already joined this, then they must have thought about it in the past, or I don't need to apply so much so much thought to whether or not this is a good idea because it is just something which people do. And in a sense, that's kind of scary because it shows how how maybe ideas which are dangerous or ideas which which aren't having a positive impact can take hold as soon as enough as soon as they gather enough early momentum. Um, but it can also be really powerful in positive directions, which we've seen with Mary Alternative as well. I think another interesting thing to kind of point out as well is how um, the committee or, or the movement has really embraced this kind of um, social and like peer uh, element of it as well through like college rep schemes or through other things um, where you're really explicitly trying to um, create that community amongst kind of already established friendship groups and stuff. Do you want to elaborate about that? Yeah, I, I think that because of the nature of the ask, the fact that this is something very significant, we, compared to other charity initiatives, we can't convince people as easily just off the back of seeing something on Facebook, on their Facebook feed. You know, it often requires, I said at the beginning, it required several conversations with each person. But even now, it requires a little bit more engagement. And that also speaks to the fact that what we're asking people to do is something which is a deliberate and conscious act, which is donating more than they've donated before. And this often means that they need to be able to speak to other people and to, to, to make that decision, to go through the process. There are obviously some people with whom it clicks 
immediately but and and that's a that's a growing proportion of people as the movement grows for the social for the reasons of social norms and normalization which i was describing earlier but for us it has been important to have conversations with people for them to join and one thing which has been interesting is the ways that entire social groups have been ha- have joined so for example there were people who in year 1 we maybe got one person through a conversation to join and then when it got to year 2 suddenly their whole their whole flat was coming or their whole house or their whole social group was coming because of because of the effect it had, it had had on them and then those people bring their own friends in in the following year and that's been something which we've seen quite a lot is people joining and then the following year bringing their friends and that's been the way that it's spread a particularly salient example of the scrutiny which people apply depending on how many people have joined or the the previous success which an idea or an initiative has had was in the context of trying to set this up in Oxford because there you had something which was really quite quite a good comparison because very few people in Oxford know about it almost no one except for people who are friends with people who are very involved in Cambridge and so in that sense you have an almost equivalent situation Oxford's very similar to Cambridge and it's very similar to the initial situation when we were trying to set it up for the first time here in Cambridge because you're going to people who haven't heard of it before with with a brand new idea can you can you do this in Oxford now, even though Oxford don't have May Week, so it has to the the idea doesn't fit as nicely as it did in in the context of Cambridge. Just the fact that we could show how well it had worked in Cambridge meant that people said, "Yeah, if it works in Cambridge. It's going to work in Oxford," and 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 didn't ask quite so many questions. And it it kind of people were much more willing to to run with the idea and to believe that it was something that they could do, having seen that it could work, even though that was in a completely different place. Do you think there's something special about the university setting? Because you might say, look, all your friends are in the same place. It's really easy to have lots of face-to-face conversations about this. On the other hand, really high turnover of students. Most people are only here for three, maybe four years before they leave again. Mm. That might undermine the momentum, the sustainability of this kind of movement. Would this kind of thing work outside a university? Well, a particular campus university as well, or a closed city university. When we're talking about normalization, social normalization, university is a fascinating environment because it's almost like a closed bubble. And so you wonder whether you can reach a critical mass within that closed bubble, which isn't possible to the or which is much harder right. to do in, in kind of open society. And particularly because of that high turnover, which you talk about, it means that some we're, we're standing in the freshers fair and some freshers are hearing about May Week Alternative before they've even heard of May Week. Now we're in our third year, which means that a significant number of students have only ever been around in Cambridge when May Week Alternative has been around. So from a legitimacy point of view, it's kind of it's a part of it's a part of Cambridge and it can become that very, very quickly. Now, the question is. That high turnover means that you're getting people coming in all the time, but you're also getting people leaving and potentially you're getting some of the people who really like maybe alternative right at the start uh, who are leaving and and 
and who who you're, you're therefore losing every year quite a large number of people who who were who had joined maybe alternative within that you're obviously looking also at the committee mm-hmm. so people who set it up moving on and the the founding team not being able to to run it year on year on year and so you have to build some kind of institutional methods of of being able to repeat this because you lose the the individual perspectives and experiences but i think that from a perspective of social norms the university is a fascinating example because what we've noticed is that within certain groups or segments of cambridge's of of cambridge life you're sometimes able to reach a critical mass which means that far more people will join and it's achievable because it's only in maybe the hundreds of people rather than in the thousands but but i imagine there's probably a critical mass even within the 20,000 students in cambridge whereby you'd be able to um accelerate that growth even even more quickly so one other area that i want to get into is the idea of deadlines and what kind of role that has played in as well because what one thing that you could say is you know this idea sounds great but um, why don't you have it all year round where people can donate from the very um, start at university or, you know, even up until the very day before the, the celebration happens. But that's not what Maywick Alternative does. There's a very closed window where you can donate. Um, do you care to elaborate about that? There are a couple of reasons why this works really well. And initially I was skeptical about the idea of a deadline because the concept was getting people to celebrate May week through giving and the idea of putting a deadline on people donating to charity seemed seemed quite strange mm. but and partially it's built into our psychology as students that that we will procrastinate until we have to do something and so I think there are a lot of people at the beginning who who were thinking you know yeah this is something which uh, it would be uh, it'd be great if I did this but but you know I don't need to do this now and then would just never have got round to actually doing it. So in that sense, having a deadline means that people have to make a decision. And a lot of people uh, will then fall on the yes side of that decision. There's another part of it as well, which is to do with the nature of what we're asking people to do. And we know, and I know from going around talking about it right from the beginning, that that when you're suggesting that students donate more than they would otherwise ever uh, donate up until this point or 150 pounds something in in of of that order of magnitude that it, it kind of turns people off before they've even got any further it makes people kind of very very defensive and very uh, not defensive but um when you're suggesting something which requires donating a significant amount of money that puts people off kind of before you've even started and so one thing which is really nice about having a specific period in which people are donating is that for the whole of the rest of the year you can talk to people about the idea and you can get people on board with the with the philosophy of what you're trying to do without having a scary ask from them Mm. What that means is that when you later come and say, well, would you like to join? They've, they've already decided that it's, it's a good thing. It's something that they want to do. And they've given it more of a chance because there wasn't a, a kind of scary ask at the beginning. So because of those 
factors, having having a specific period in which we're trying to galvanize as many people as possible to actually join the movement to to uh, off the back of of all the conversations we've been having over the course of the year that it's all focused on this time it also leads to what's quite a magical environment during that period because everyone's doing it at the same time you get that sense of community and you get that sense of of buzz around it that people are all all, all deciding at the same time and are therefore talking about it and I mean, if you look at the if you look at the lead up to the deadlines over the past uh, over the past few years, the number of students who have joined in those last forty eight hours is um, it's been kind of magical to continue refreshing the page and and see student after student after student see that page going up by thousands and thousands and understanding that behind that is is kind of a cascade of students who are making the biggest donation of their lives and and deciding to embrace giving at the heart of May week, which has never really been about that. And probably a bit of laziness as well, waiting uh, for the very last moment to do so. <laughs> um, is there something about the anchoring effect as well? When you mention how much students are like perfectly happy to go along with paying for a May ball, about £150 suddenly becomes less outrageous to ask for a similar amount of money um, to give to charity. Yeah, I mean, I I think that being in a environment where paying that amount of money is normalized in this particular week um, makes it easier to suggest that that sort of money is what people might want to donate i don't know you might have to lower the lower that recommended amount in in an environment in which that you, you didn't have that but actually one thing which we've noticed is that and this is what we're trying to do in terms of changing long-term attitudes towards giving so we've noticed that people have joined one year and maybe not felt comfortable to donate 150 pounds and have donated maybe 50 pounds or 60 pounds or 80 pounds or 40 pounds but have then joined and been a part often they've come to the the event during may week as well and they've They've seen that lots of other people have made this positive decision. They've they've maybe had a positive experience themselves and then have gone on in a future year to donate much more money, to donate, for example, the full £150. There's even one person who at the beginning, uh, his reaction was, yeah, no, it's a really nice idea, but I just, I, uh, it's not for me. I can't myself donate £80 or I, I I just don't feel comfortable giving away that sort of money. And this year he was saying that even the £150 donation no longer felt actually significant to him and he wanted to donate even more. So we've seen those individual transformations which have come through joining and through being a part of that community and perhaps taking on that taking on the idea of embracing giving as a part of their internal identity as well. Do you think luck played any role in this early success of MWA? Yeah, hugely. I think so. I described that process of trying to get the first person to join, and there's always, I, I you know, at the, at that time, it wasn't a successful initiative. Nobody had joined. It was me, and so uh, to take an extreme, if no one had joined within a year, I probably would have stopped asking people before. Yeah, I don't know when that point when that point would have been, but 
it was vital for the movement to actually take off that one of the people who I'd happened to ask, and this was obviously, uh, uh, this was sometimes just who I happened to be sitting next to at dinner um, in hall, it required that one of those people early enough would be one of the early adopters. Because if that hadn't happened, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have got anywhere. As I said, there are, there are plenty of people who would join once 500 people have already joined. And there are probably only a handful of people around Cambridge who would be the first person to say that they would join. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of it was down to luck that I, I found one of those people um, early enough before I decided that I was never going to find anyone. That's also speaks to the importance of finding who your early adopters are going to be, particularly when when your ask is a significant one and when you there are only a specific group of people who might be your early adopters so perhaps going to people who already who already you know somewhat closer to these conclusions than the average person might be and for whom it wouldn't necessarily be such a leap and you try to get those people on board and then that makes it easier for other people for whom it's maybe a little bit harder to then join because they don't have to necessarily be the first people who, who are coming on board. So finding those those early adopters, those people who are going to say yes right from the start is vital because it allows you to access those other people who would only join once a few other people have made that decision. One thing which we spoke about last year as a committee was about noticing the positive changes in the students who we were speaking to in the conversations. And the reason that was important was because even after we'd had, I mean, our first year we had 40 students joining, we raised £12,000. That's a huge success for what we were trying to do. But bear in mind that that was still like 90% of the conversations we were having were not were ending up in people not joining. And that could feel often, you know, quite demoralizing. And what we were trying to remember in, in our in our heads was that you might have in the first year 10% of people join and in the second year 20% or 30% of people join and the next year 30% of or 40% of your of your conversations are leading to people joining and that still means that even by the third year the majority of conversations you're having are, are, are not ending successfully which can be quite 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 demoralizing and we we thought that one of the key threats to the success of Mayweek Alternative or the long-term existence would be us not seeing that positive, not seeing the fact that, that your success rate was doubling year on year, but instead feeling that we were being rejected, to put it in those terms, most of the time. And so I think that that when you're looking at a, a movement which isn't easy to join, having that that positive mindset is vital for the individuals who are actually involved in trying to grow it. So, so far, we've talked about two kind of really interesting elements. Um, On the one hand, we talked a lot about the social effects and how people take cues from people in their immediate surroundings and um, how that can influence their own decisions in donating. But then on the other hand, we've also talked about how most people end up donating and end up, I guess, showing that signal of donating right at the very end or right on the very last day. Um, Has there been anything uh, that that you've kind of thought could could help with that? Yeah, so this is the exact question which we were asking ourselves as a committee this year it's these two factors the fact that it's easier to for people to decide to donate once they've seen other people already do that but also that 
the majority of people won't donate until the deadline comes up. And that means that if you've got a month of of trying to get people to join, uh, then maybe for three and a half weeks, it doesn't look like very many people have, have done it. And if you could get to a point where, say, say you've got 500 people who are going to join, um, if you could get to a point where, you know, 100 of those had joined within the first week, that would make it a lot easier for the following three weeks to get more people to join. And then you might get to six or 700 rather than rather than to 500. But the problem is, how, how do you get those people to donate early? Right. You could have individual conversations and and you know i could explain that to you and say hey finn if you're just if you're thinking of donating it'd be really great if you could do it this week rather than waiting until the end because that might encourage other people to join but that is quite a hard thing to do on a mass scale uh to to speak to people not only about joining but then asking them to join early um and but on the other hand it's very hard to incentivize people because we are explicitly about people donating and that's because of the act of of giving, because of the impact which that would have. So we don't want to be like, well, you can have a free shirt if if you donate in the first week or so. And so the solution which we came up with speaking to our match funders was uh, offering to triple all donations. So all donations are doubled anyway, but offering to triple them within the first within the first week, 10 days of the donations period. And that's what we've done this year. And it's been uh, hugely successful. We've basically got more, we've got about double the number of people that, as we had last year, but just within those first 10 days of tripling. Um, and, and that means that we have several weeks left, but we can now have have those conversations with people who are perhaps more uncertain, but with the legitimacy which comes from already having had more than 300 people donating and and already having raised you know almost 90,000 pounds in in just in just this year and so we're hoping that that will make it easier for people who are maybe more on the fence to decide to join so it sounds like you've learned a lot over the last couple of years about building a charitable movement we've talked about anchoring we've talked about group effects we've talked about the idea of a critical mass um, but do you have unanswered questions here? Are there things you'd still really like to know? There are lots of questions which I would like to know the answers to. One of them I described earlier that at the beginning, for anyone to join, it required a few conversations with them. And as time goes on, and particularly as you have the legitimacy of, of previous success, it becomes easier and easier for people to join without having lots and lots of conversations. And what's interesting for us is... How, what percentage of people who join can come without even having a conversation with a rep or without knowing anyone else who was previously involved? What percentage could come just from seeing a poster or just from seeing something on their newsfeed and could already decide that they wanted to join? And essentially this speaks somewhat to how powerful can, can social normalisation be? Like at, at what point, uh, is there a point at which you could get more than half of people without having had conversations if you reach a particular threshold maybe you don't need to have any reps at all maybe you can maybe you can just get lots of people joining because this is something which people do in the sense that like mabels don't necessarily need reps um it's obviously different because they sell themselves whereas whereas um people don't necessarily themselves receive anything for for the donation but that's a question i'm fascinated to to understand is is can you get this normalization 
to a point at which people just join without mm. necessarily requiring too much stimulus. And what the implications of that, I think, are quite, are quite profound. Because if you look, we've been talking about student charity, but if you look at donations as a percentage of income or wealth in society as a whole, it's really low. Like, people just don't give very much. Like, the fact that the, fact that the giving what we can pledge, which is considered kind of revolutionary, is 10%. So in the broader context of society, when average donations are not particularly high as a percentage of overall income or overall wealth, if, by whatever mechanism, it could be normalised that people actually gave more money generally to charity and gave away more money, could such a process of normalisation spread across not just a university campus around a specific week of celebration, but could you envisage a process through which the way that people in society as a whole think about giving and the amounts that they give was also changed by similar dynamics to what we've experienced? It's interesting that, at least in wealthy countries, there's actually like a stigma to be against too loudly advertising the fact that you're giving lots of money to charity it's like a bit arrogant or a bit kind of showy and that's something which is really troubling when you're looking at creating those outcomes through a process of social normalization because one of the key uh, mechanisms of social normalization is the fact that people know that other people are doing it and that it's part of their identity right and it's, it's something which they are which they are expressing. And we've had that within Cambridge as well. Like there's obviously some, we have to be really careful that Mary Alternative doesn't become perceived as, as a mechanism through which people show that they're very generous, right? right? Because, of that, because of that taboo. But obviously if we're trying to uh, get more and more people to do this because this is something which lots and lots of people want to do. We need to make people comfortable to say that this is a decision they've they've taken because they think it's the right thing to do. And so that taboo is potentially uh, a barrier because people aren't necessarily that there's that stigma around saying I've donated this amount of money to charity or I've made a significant donation or I'm celebrating May Week through giving because that's seen as virtue signaling mm. that makes it that makes it maybe more difficult to to spread the movement through through a process of social normalization. Sure, but in the long term. Nowadays it's probably less objectionable to like buy a really flashy Rolex because you're the kind of person who likes flashy gadgets than to spend an equivalent amount of money on charity and tell your friends about that. I mean you'd you'd sound more arrogant in the second case, which is kind of um, possibly surprising, right? And you see this also, uh, although this is a slightly separate point, but the same dynamics exist or the same kind of double standards exist in the charity sector as a whole. So, mm. for example, we don't have a problem with people earning loads of money um, uh, like in something which is an amoral, like, leave, leave immoral to aside, but in, in some amoral industry. But we seem to have some aversion to people who are working in, in the do-good industry, in the charity industry, who are earning a lot of money. There's one other question I'd really like to know the answer to in the context of May Week Alternative, which is that it's, it's quite clear to see the impact of the concept and the way that we frame the concept 
in terms of directly how much money are you raising. We can see that students are donating more through May Week Alternative than, than in other charity initiatives that we're raising that we're raising more than you'd be expected to raise. We can see that side of it and we can very easily quantify how much impact we're having through the money which we're raising directly. However, the other part of it is about changing the way that students think about giving in the long term, and that's much harder to quantify. We have some data, for example, people who joined last year, how much did they donate then, and how much are they donating in a subsequent year in, in those cases where they perhaps didn't, didn't donate as much as, as other people um, or didn't feel as co- so comfortable to do that, maybe going through that process of, of actually making the donation and, and feeling that they had a positive experience made it easier for them to do to do to make a bigger donation uh, the, the following year and that perhaps speaks to uh, the possibility of having a long-term impact on people's giving habits which is as I said before that's probably where the the, the larger proportion of our impact is going to come um, when you consider how much how long the students are going to be living um, for and how much money they're going to earn over the course of their careers. But it's, it's, it's difficult to know to what extent is, is joining Maybe Alternative likely to have that, that impact on, on your attitude towards giving in the long term. There are a few different levels I think this may be able to operate on. One of them is simply that even for people who maybe thought that donating a lot of money was a really good idea but hadn't actually done it, maybe simply doing it on one occasion through Mary Alternative in this framework which we've created breaks down the barriers to future giving and makes people feel more comfortable today in the future. And I think there are a couple of examples of specific individuals and I probably include myself within that for whom for whom that is the case and who now feel more comfortable to donate even if we did think it was a good idea in principle beforehand. The ideal situation would be that joining May Week Alternative for any student leads to this kind of long-term uh, uh, change in, in habits of giving. But one thing, one hypothesis which I've been thinking about is whether actually there there is an already visible impact on the attitudes of people who are on committee, who are organising it, or who are reps. Um, I think that I obviously have more more contact with them than I do with, with you know, people who are joining but, but are not necessarily mm-hmm. as involved. Um, but I've seen that it's kind of become, this way of thinking about charity has become second nature to a lot of reps, to a lot of people who are, um, who are on the organising committee. And so I wonder whether perhaps there's something about the process of of pitching a concept mm-hmm. which leads, which helps with that internalization process, which helps with taking something from being a social norm, um, i.e. maybe you joined because loads of other people joined and it seemed like a good thing to do, to being an internalized norm, i.e. something that even if a lot of people we're not doing this in another context, You've still, it's still become perhaps a part of your identity. And I think the sorts of things that reps do, for example, changing their profile picture or telling their friends that this is something that they endorse, perhaps help with that process of embedding it into identity, perhaps help with that internalization process. So when you look at the fact that we have like more than 70 people who are in that capacity in Cambridge just now and, and see how maybe those mechanisms are 
particularly powerful in changing attitudes towards giving, there could be really serious uh, impact uh, within that context. What needs to happen for that short-term change in approach, which is visible, as I've said, to become a long-term change in approach, is for those social norms, those external norms, to become internalized. And I'm interested in what the process is for people who have different levels of engagement. How can we, obviously, we want to know how can we uh, create that impact and create that process for everyone who joins. But I wonder whether it's particularly powerful, and we've already seen evidence of it with people who are actually involved in trying to get others to join. And so one of the ways in which we try to get more people to join is by, as soon as someone donates, sending them an email which says thank you very much for donating um why don't you why don't you suggest that your friends join bring your friends um like uh, if you're celebrating in this way why don't why don't you ask your friends to celebrate in this way i wonder whether there's also some power in that in that in people having those conversations with their friends uh, they're they're more likely to be internalizing this as something which is important and central to them um, one thing that also I'm not sure if this is going to make the final card but I think it's an interesting idea to raise like one thing that this really reminds me of is like a lot of what I think like volunteering tries to do as well so you mentioned before that like the two ways that students typically engage in charity is um, either through transactions or it's kind of imperceptible but the other like big way I know students engage is volunteering mm-hmm. and I know a big part of that is as well like behind you know the doors or like what some of these organizations are planning as well is of course, you know, if you're going to go volunteer in Africa, that's not going to be as effective as if you just transferred all the money you spent on the flights or whatever there. But part of the idea is, is that if you actually spend two months um, in the country with the people, that that leaves such a, like, a lasting impression that the idea is, is that if you then go on into your later career, that impression stays with you and that kind of culture of, of giving stays with you as well. And I think there's a lot of it, similarities between what you just said now. And um, so when I volunteered for the Cambridge Development Initiative, what the founder was saying literally the exact same thing of I really hope that this will have a long-term impact when people actually go on into the real world um, and then come make their career choices or their donation choices or what have you. And it's interesting because like the, this idea of volunteering, particularly abroad, is often criticised. Yeah. And, yeah. and one of the arguments is, or one of the refutations of that argument is, well, you know, it shouldn't take that experience for you to feel engaged with the issue. Yeah, I'm yeah. telling you what the problem is, but on a psychological level, mm. that that doesn't. I does, that, yeah. It, it, I, yeah, I think it does work. And if you speak to people who are involved in charities, particularly particularly charities abroad, have this problem because volunteering isn't easy, right? There's nothing obvious that you you could go and work in the headquarters and help to you know pack up envelopes or fill in Excel spreadsheets or something. But it's not particularly easy to see how a model of like volunteers is really going to increase your capacity that much and certainly not as much as actual fundraising or donations or money would. But I think you're you're completely right that there's, particularly for young people, an, an idea that uh, volunteering is an easier thing for young people to do than, than donating mm-hmm. and that even if that volunteering is has basically negligible could be rounded to zero impact um it's its main impact is is in the connection which the young person is developing with that charity i think this is actually quite a nice transition into the 
discussion of effective altruism as well, because now we're essentially talking about how can people maximize their impact and how do we kind of think about um, how far um, our donations can go and are there more intangible things that we need to consider as well? Uh, yeah. Finn, do you want to... Well, I can just imagine someone listening to all of this and thinking it's really great what you've done, really encouraging, but you might just be sceptical about the effectiveness of charity in general and more narrowly of charities which focus on development and aid. And you might say, look, historically, they might not have been as effective as we'd hoped. In some cases, they might even have done more harm than good. So you might think that we should be very careful about just assuming that these kind of charities are, are going to do good. I'm doing currently an, a module on NGOs. Oh, okay. And one thing which frustrates me in the study of NGOs and the criti critiques of NGOs is that this is kind of taken as a criticism of, of for example, the entire sector. Yeah. One episode of poor practice within a particular organization is seen as a reason to doubt the entire sector. And I think that like, when, when we think about charities, the, the main reason we're thinking about them is because we're thinking, which charity should I donate to? Or which is, like, it's not, it's not a theoretical question. And you just don't have to have a conclusion which which is that all charities are this or all charities are that. You just need to find one charity or, or a couple of charities which you think do do a good job. Uh, especially, uh, especially now as well. So I, I'm kind of coming from like a development economics background, but um, we're living like through such a revolution at the moment as well of like these things being tested and actually finding evidence and NGOs and governments actually actively trying to maximize the impact that they're doing. And one big result of it really being that it's highly dependent on context and it's really hard to actually find what is the most impactful thing in this very specific scenario. So when we, when we talk about effective altruism, I think one thing that's really interesting uh, to kind of see is that it kind of takes a very logical, almost like quite a robotic approach to donating because you're literally, you know, calculating and writing out the equations of uh, how can I maximize my impact. What I find really interesting about um, Mayweek Alternative and, and how you, you've pitched it today and how it, it, it's, it's operating is that it kind of merges two different worlds. Because on the one hand, mm -hmm. the charity and the the, the, th the cause you're raising money for is the Against Malaria Foundation, which is the most effective or one of the most effective charities um, when you look at um, think tanks such as GiveWell or, or other evaluators. But on the other hand, you know, you've, you've got that um, logical side there. On the other hand, there's this intangible side to it as well of that identity and community and trying to make a, a long-term impact. And I find that like melding of ideas really interesting. I think the central challenge for the effective altruism movement in terms of outreach, in terms of reaching a broader, a broader proportion of the population, is how can you combine those two things? Because the, the mechanisms through which uh, effectiveness is calculated and decisions are calculated in, in, uh, in, in effective altruism is something which doesn't necessarily appeal to a particularly broad uh, spectrum of the population. And, and yet these are ideas which I, I think that it would be great if, if more people were taking on. But maybe you need to approach it from a different angle. And I think that's part of what Mayweek Alternative is trying to do. You mentioned that people accuse effective altruism as a movement of being mechanical and mm. and I think built into that there's some there's there's 
an implication that it kind of lacks heart or lacks lacks any emotion, which is something which I've always found quite challenging to uh, given that the the reason that people are trying to work out the answers to these important questions is because they fundamentally care and they fundamentally want the 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 most amount of good um, regardless of 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 kind of other considerations which might get in the way they want they they want to you know dedicate their lives and their their money to their most to having the most amount of good and the fact that that gets kind of converted into the idea that they 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 somehow like care less than the average person i think is is i, I think that's kind of problematic I mean, it might be worth putting it this way effective altruism says that um it's useful sometimes to quantify the effects that your giving might have to um, quite seriously evaluate um, how different charities work and perhaps even to compare them. But that's a separable question from how to convince people to give to the charities or the charity that turns out to be most effective. Um, and I hear a lot of self-described effective altruists just draw quite a quick conclusion from their commitment to evaluating charities to then saying, well, surely people ought to be just very easily persuaded as soon as we use these these arguments. And if they're not persuaded, well, they're not reasonable enough. Um, but it just sounds to me like framing charity as a kind of celebration just sounds so much more um, natural and, at the end of the day, effective. Well, that's the irony, isn't it? Yeah. It's not to say <laughs> that the way that effective altruism goes about convincing people is wrong it just may be it, it may be less effective and let me put it to you in this way i told you how difficult it was to get people to join mm. right at the beginning if i knocked on your door and said i'm going to give you a series of facts here mabel tickets cost 150 pounds they make you a little bit happier for a night and they give you experience which you'll be which will which you'll be happy about for the rest of your life let's say or for a few more years the same amount of money could lead to 170 180 people being protected from malaria that could mean that a bunch of those people who would have got ill don't get ill don't die are able to go to school are able to get out of poverty how can you now go on and surely you can't now go and buy your mabel ticket you must instead donate that money and all the money that you are going to be spending on excessive, on forms of excessive and unnecessary consumption to to charity. How do you respond to that? I think it would have taken more than a week for me to get the first person <laughs> to join. Um, so Mayweek Alternative, they encourage donations to a charity called the Against Malaria Foundation. Could you explain what they do? Yeah, so the Against Malaria Foundation, it's important firstly to say that um, we recommend the Against Malaria Foundation, but you could probably notice from from the concept that it doesn't necessarily, necessarily rely on, on malaria specifically. So it's about celebrating through giving. And if people uh, particularly would like to donate to a different charity, then that's still we, we still welcome that. But we recommend the Against Malaria Foundation because the Against Malaria Foundation has a very simple mission and it's quite... Uh, it's very effective in the way that it goes about this, and it's to to stop people from contracting malaria, to stop people from dying from malaria. 400,000 people die every year from malaria, and the tragedy is that this is entirely preventable. Um, like, we know that putting people under a mosquito 
net, a bed net as they sleep, um, like drastically reduces the chances that they'll be bitten by a mosquito, that they'll they'll uh, contract malaria. And yet, uh, and these are also like very cheap to to uh, to install uh, and to buy. And yet, like, very many people still die from this because they they are in a malaria zone, but but uh, don't have that protection. So the Against Malaria Foundation makes a makes a huge huge difference towards those people's lives in the areas it's worked. The the instances of malaria have dropped, and we have that data for the for the places where uh, for the distributions which our fundraising has has funded. Um, we have we have the data on on you know how how many of those malaria nets are still up after several months down the line and and how are they affecting how are they stopping people from from becoming ill with and dying from malaria um, and so I think that it's 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 like a hugely important issue but the the fundamental reason why why we recommend that over other charities is because it's independently rated as one of the most effective charities in the world and and that's that's you, you come to that by by um, making some assumptions about what you'd like to maximize so for example like years of healthy life and and this intervention uh, is is understood to to for that every pound can do that better than 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 through other organizations and often by many orders of magnitude and it's really important to us that we're making this recommendation because when we're inviting students to make a really significant donation we need to we have a responsibility to make sure that we've done our homework and that this is going to do the most good possible we've we've often we're often approached by people working for various different charities saying, oh, could you do it for us this year? And these charities are doing really good work and they're solving important problems and they're helping people in lots of different and important ways. Um, but but to be honest, if, if, if I'm recommending, if we're recommending that people are making such a big donation to a charity, and then they ask, why have you recommended this charity? And I say, well, they arbitrarily emailed us and so we thought that that was like the best place that we should give our money to. I wouldn't think that that was a very rec- rigorous recommendation. And I, I, I think that the, um, the idea of like having as many years of healthy life is something which I think most people um, w- would agree with. I guess it's also just worth emphasizing just how much um, the Against Malaria Foundation are able to do with that donation of 150 pounds, which you encourage could you just describe what 150 pounds can um, make possible? Yeah, it's really remarkable. So we we have much funding for every donation. So that means that 150 pounds goes to 300 pounds, and that can protect more than 350 people from malaria. Uh, we were discussing earlier about how we find it easier to relate to a particular individual, a particular story, and that's that's paradoxically maybe an issue which we have because the impact is just so great that it's it's kind of not easy to focus on one particular individual, and and there's like the fact that each student who joins could could protect like 350 people from malaria. Their donation could help to to do that is is really huge, and this has led to, I mean, in in our first year when we when we had only 40 students. Um, the, the the amount of money which we raised was twelve thousand pounds, and and that was enough to protect uh, a greater number of people than there are undergraduates in Cambridge, and that's with like only forty people joining. So there's a combination, uh, w- which is what I think is um, uh, so impactful about my week alternative. There's a combination of the average amount that students are donating, and the effectiveness of the intervention 
the effectiveness of the charity which we're supporting, which means that the potential impact is just huge. Like we, we've now in three years, we'll have protected more than 150,000 people. That's more than there are people in Cambridge. What, 150,000 people? Each of those individuals with, you know, with, with the complexities of their lives, their, their futures, their desires. Like one person <laughs> times 150,000. And that's, that's only with, with starting, from zero, starting from nothing and in, in, in less than two years. So if you consider the impact which would happen if you get, you know, 500, 700 people per year for a number of years, potentially going outside of Cambridge as well. The, the impact when you, make, when you combine the framing and the cause selection is, is pretty remarkable. I'm interested to know, what advice might you offer to anyone who's listening to this and thinking about starting a similar kind of movement? I think there are three main things which I've learned, which I'd, which I'd suggest that people consider. Um, it's cause selection, um, considering the impact really carefully, measuring that, and also future planning. So to talk a little, about, a little bit about all three of those. So um, cause selection, we've spoken before about trying to make sure that whichever charity that you're raising money for, raising awareness, ra- raising awareness of, isn't necessarily chosen arbitrarily, but that you're, you're really spending time thinking about that. And one thing which I notice is that in the context of setting up a fundraising initiative, I think, and we've discussed already the, the uh, idea of, of making sure that you're giving to the right cause, that um, which cause you choose will be responsible for like above 90%, maybe above 99% of the impact of the overall initiative. Mm. And then if you look at the amount of time that people spend thinking about which cause, mm. it's, it's like less than 1% of the time that people spend on the initiative. So I think that you, uh, that, that spending, making sure that you're working towards the right cause um, is hugely important because that determines the vast majority of the impact of all the rest of the work that you're doing. So you need to get that right at the beginning. The second thing is also about impact. Um, and this is something which I've noticed a lot is, uh, is through this process, is that the things which people consider a success and people in general consider a success about a movement don't necessarily align with what may or may not be most impactful. Um, and I, I think a really good example of this is, is counterfactual impact. So that's the idea of not only looking at like how much money have we raised, but what does that mean? Um, that I think the relevant question is how much money have we raised compared to what would have been given if Maywick Alternative didn't exist? Um, I can give you a couple of, ex- of, of examples where that's been really relevant. So, for example, with the match funding, there are some people who might decide that this was a donation they were going to make for example, to the Against Malaria Foundation anyway, and they want to make it through May Week Alternative, as it were, because that, that money would then be doubled by, by other match funders, and so their impact would be doubled. 
I'm not saying whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's important to to recognize that th- that 150 pounds which came from that person would probably have gone got, gone to the charity anyway. And so this has implications when you're when you're thinking about which sorts of people are you trying to get to join. Um, like at the extreme, we could try and focus entirely on people who'd already decided to donate to the Against Malaria Foundation anyway. But then the marginal impact which you're having isn't necessarily so large. So I think that. A really important question to ask is, are you actually expanding the size of the pie or are you just taking a slice of the pie away from potentially what's going to a different cause anyway? And that's why changing the way students think about giving, trying to get students to give more than they otherwise would, is really, is, is really, really important for us so that it's not just that they're donating to us and then next time a different charity asks them for money, they then will, will be less likely to do that. Uh, I think in the in the charity sector more widely, like the incentive structure isn't necessarily set up to have this focus on what I would call new money, which is really important. Like if you're fundraising for in WaterAid's fundraising department, for example, um, surely money which which would otherwise be much less likely to go to any charity at all mm-hmm. is is uh, should be more of a priority than money which otherwise would have gone to UNICEF or some other kind of charity. And you have loads of situations whereby a specific amount of money has been set aside to go to charity anyway, and you have lots of people competing over over that, and, and essentially all that's happening there is it's going to one cause over another cause, whereas pursuing a different channel might be generating you know, new money or money which wouldn't have gone to charity anyway. It's an interesting thought, right? So no particular charity has an incentive um, to think about counterfactuals and just to kind of expand the size of the charity pie because as long as they get more donations, that's a win for them. And they don't need to worry about the fact that those more donations just came from someone who would otherwise have given to an equivalent kind of charity. So you need that like bird's eye perspective about just doing more good in general, um, not worrying about the particular, you know, charity and i guess the question is how do we how do we kind of get those incentives going and that's why it's important i think the incentives aren't there that's why it's important for people who are in in my situation to be really really aware of that because you could have people yeah i've had people who said you know i was i I was going to make this donation i could you know make i could do this and then not do that what do you think about that and and like the incentives of maybe alternative is what are we trying to maximize the amount of money which maybe alternative raises but i think that that's probably a little short-sighted as a view and that again we need to consider not only how much money is adding to our total but what's the differential what's the marginal impact Mm -hmm. which our total actually signifies the final point is about future planning this is particularly relevant in the context of university where we have that, that high turnover. Um, but the, the impact of having an initiative like Mary Alternative around in five or ten years versus not is orders of magnitude greater than whether it goes a bit better this year or a bit worse this year, whether we raise a little bit more or a little bit less. And so with that in mind, I think that it's always much more salient how's this year going to look. We, we want to focus on that. But if it ever comes to a question whereby you could spend a little bit of, uh, you could spend a little bit more time thinking about in, increasing the chances of, of future existence um, versus optimizing what's currently happening now then i'd advise almost always going for that future uh that future planning so now we've just got two last questions the first one is 
Um, what's the biggest thing in having started this that you've changed your mind about? We discussed it a little bit earlier, but I'd say the main thing is, and I've, I've learned this through being put in a lot of situations which have brought out this tension, but the amount of money that people raise or that it looks like an initiative has raised is not the same as the impact that that initiative has had. And I think we often use it as a proxy, as a heuristic for impact, and we have to do our best to look beyond that and work out actually what is the marginal impact. Great. So the last question we ask everyone is, which three books or podcasts or papers would you recommend to anyone who's interested in finding out more? So... It's funny that you asked that because when we set up the committee this year, I did send a link to a few to a few books which people could read over the summer, which were particularly relevant to different roles on the committee. I'd say the three I'd recommend are, which I'll describe a little bit, uh, "Doing Good Better" by Will McCaskill. Um, the podcast well, it's, it's the podcast which talks about a book um, of how change happens by Cass Sunstein and you can find that podcast on the 80,000 hours podcast I guess we'll put a link in the description and thirdly Thinking Fast and Slow uh, for those who haven't read it by uh, Danny Kahneman um, but also with the work that he did uh, based on the work that he did with Amos Tversky so to take them one by one Doing Good Better is, I think, a book which is should be compulsory reading for for anyone who who is in in the position where they're trying to work on on anything which is having a positive impact. Because what it does really well is it is it explains what are the questions which you need to ask if you want to have a positive impact, um, and it shows some of the questions which we think that we should be asking but which don't necessarily lead to the right answers. So part of that is giving advice on on which causes, which charities specifically are likely to do the most good, um, that part of it is, you know, how how could we have a career which has the most impact? Is working for a charity necessarily the most impactful thing that we can do? He argues that it isn't and that there are other more impactful paths which we could pursue, um, even how we live our lives. So um, in the decisions of what we wear or what we eat, w- which are the decisions which are actually going to... Uh, have 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 the biggest impact and what are the mistakes the most common mistakes which people make and things which we think are going to be positively impactful but either have negligible impact or in some cases actually uh, have a negative impact so that's the first book now thinking fast and slow is i think the if if doing good better is is the bible for for <laughs> positive impact then i think thinking fast and slow is the bible for understanding how people work and in setting up a in setting up a um, a social movement and trying to encourage a behaviour which isn't an expected behaviour, um, understanding how people make those decisions not as rational agents, but um, uh, understanding how our psychology is built has been has been hugely important because I, I don't think that we could have got anywhere in terms of getting to these getting to these uh, outcomes without understanding what's actually driving whether or not someone joins or what's driving uh, what's driving someone's decision to donate or not to donate or to donate X amount versus another amount. And it has some really surprising uh, implications. And as I was reading it going through, it's, it's quite a long and involved book, but uh, as I was reading it, I, 
I was taking notes and I put in red and in bold anything which potentially had a use with maybe alternative. Um, so I think it's, it's a treasure trove of behavioral insights and I highly recommend it. And then thirdly, how change happens. So this is particularly interesting in the context of the social dynamics of a movement. And earlier on, I was talking about the importance of finding early adopters and the legitimacy which comes from more and more people joining. And he writes about this in his model of social change, Cass Sunstein. And he suggests that for different, for different ideas and for different action, for different actions and behaviours, people... Well, he describes some people as being different numbers, so from a zero to uh, one million. And what that means is that, uh, for example, let me take May Week Alternative. So um, there are some people who will do this without anyone telling them, who will donate that amount of money without anyone telling them that, uh, that, that that's the right thing to do, and they're a zero. And then there are some people who will only do it once 10,000 out of the 20,000 people in Cambridge have, have, have done it, and there are, there are 10,000. And so what's really important is finding the early adopters, which are your ones and your twos and your threes and your fours, um, so, uh, and, and therefore growing outwards until you can access eventually even those people who would have waited for a lot of, pe- for, for a lot of other people to join first. But what is really interesting, what's, what it's really useful for is understanding uh, how how a movement can grow from one to very many, the dynamics behind that, how often people uh, like falsify their preferences or or you can't necessarily tell whether what someone actually believes because there may be social factors or other factors which are preventing someone from expressing what they truly believe. And it could be that actually seeing enough other people doing a particular action will change someone's preference or change someone's belief on a particular issue. So understanding all of these uh, in the context of social movements is really important because it, it teaches you how you're going to get to that next stage and how that will lead to like the future growth as well. George Rosenfeld, thank you very much. That was George Rosenfeld on starting a charitable movement and the psychology of giving. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash George. There we go into more detail on everything discussed in the episode, and you'll find links to George's recommended reading and listening. Also, we would be really grateful if you could leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. We still don't have any reviews yet, and they're supposed to be a really effective way of getting more people to find out about the show. If you have constructive feedback, drop us an email, feedback at hearthisidea.com. And of course, if you would like to support the show more directly, you can also leave a tip by following the link in the show notes. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>